Couple Advisory Solutions is an SEC-registered investment advisor and only transacts business in states where the firm is properly registered or is excluded or exempt from registration requirements. I wish that our stock market were as honest as every casino I go into. The gambling propensity is strong in people to do mathematically unintelligent things. Welcome to Libel on Fire with Libel Sternbach, the financial independence and retirement show dedicated to helping you build the life of your dreams as fast as possible with as little stress as possible. Libel Sternbach is the author of Living with Financial Anxiety and Authenticity. Libel's advice has been featured in countless publications, including Reader's Digest, USA Today, Yahoo Finance, CNN Business, Investment News, and and Market Watch. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Libel on Fire. I am with best-selling author, Amazon's best-selling author of Living with Financial Anxiety, and also the book Authenticity, Libel. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Hey, how are you doing today? Unbelievable. I have made it through the fireworks and all the rest of it, and uh, I guess it's time to get down to business. How about you? Same here. Had a great weekend. All right. Let's talk about the market and the importance of investing. So first of all, Libel, let's let's level set. What is, quote, the market? So the market, when people talk about the market, um, what we're referring to generally, and, and there are a few there are a few ways that this phrase is used. Um, but generally speaking, when we talk about the market in general terms, we're talking about the stock exchange and the ability to buy and sell pieces of a company or pieces of a loan to a company um, or any kind of, you know, slicing and dicing of basically those two instruments, right? Of, of, you know, I either own a fractional share of a company or I've loaned a fractional amount to a company and they're going to now invest that in building their company, hiring employees, creating widgets and selling them, right? So the market, when we when we talk about the market, the there's really two things that people are talking about. The first is what we call the stock exchange. And it's a broad term, right? Because there is like, you know, the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street that you can go down to. But generally speaking, when we talk about the market, we're talking about the ability to own a fractional share in a much larger corporation. So, you know, let's take Microsoft or IBM or Facebook. So these are huge companies. They have tens of thousands of employees. They they span the world, right? They do... Um, major services. And if I wanted to own a piece of that, right, if I was, you know, if we didn't have the stock market, I'd have to pony up tens of millions of dollars to be able to even own 1%. The stock market allows me to own a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the company and participate in their profits. Now, there are lots of different things that we call the market, right? I can own equity in that, the, you know, with that stock. It's no different than owning, you know, going into business partnership with your friend other than it's regulated. Um, and we have defined terms of, you know, how much I own and how I can sell it. Um, I can have loans, right? I can loan money to those companies and they'll in turn give me interest. Now, that's one reference to the markets. 
another reference to the markets, and this is what you hear on TV a lot when they say, well, the market was up 5% or the market was down 5%. What they are referring to is usually a basket of companies. So there's a company called Standards and Poor, and they've been around for over 100 years. And what they do is they compile lists of companies and they group them together. And so one of the most common ones is what's called the S&P 500. It's the top 500 companies in the United States. And when they move, right, and when people are buying and selling them and willing to pay a higher price for them, then the market overall, most companies in general, will have gone up. Same thing when it goes down. And it's because these are the you know, 500 largest companies. It's an, it's an indication of how the overall market is behaving. So when we talk about the market, we're referring to lots of different things. But in general, what we're referring to is the fact that you can own pieces of this company, of these companies, and that they kind of move together overall. Not exactly, but sort of overall. Does that you know answer your question? It does. And it just it brought up one other question. So when you mentioned the top 500 companies, is that like a barometer of our stock financial health? of the country? So in the United States, it's, you know, the top 500 companies, but there are, you know, thousands and thousands of companies in the United States. And when we look at, you know, because it's by size, these companies uh, and this list, there are times like in recent history where that list is dominated by just a few names, you know? So uh, over the last few years, you may have heard the term fame which stands for, you know, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, uh, Microsoft, right? These companies, uh, Google, uh, these companies that make up the vast majority of the S&P 500's worth, they're not the bulk of the United States economy, right? Not by a wide margin. Um, they, they, they are significant. They have lots of money. But when you look at the overall health, right, what you're really talking about is these tech companies um, of the S&P 500. You're not talking about the mom and pop shop that's selling, you know, bagels and danishes around the corner. You're not talking about the pizzeria. They, they're too small to even be noticed. And they're not, you know, what affects Microsoft doesn't really affect them. So it's, it's an indication of, you know, uh, large companies, really, really large companies, but it can be distorted. So it's important not to equate economic, our economic health with market success, right? What happens in the market is not related to what happens in the economy. Interesting, everybody. We're talking with Leibel Sternbach and we're talking about the market. And now that we have a, a fundamental idea of what the market is, how does it work? So it works in one of two ways. Um, there's when a new company gets listed. So a new company joins the market and it's, they do what's called an initial public offering. And they'll go one-on-one -on -one to individual investors and they'll, you know, your bank will call you up and they'll say, hey, we've got a new company that's, listen, that's listing and they're selling their shares and they'll sell it directly to the public. Um, and the reason why a company goes public is usually because they've gotten so large that the amount of money that they need to raise, right, because they 
companies need cash in order to grow. They, they borrow money or they take on investors to be able to build, you know, manufacturing plants, to be able to hire employees. And so at a certain point, banks are no longer large enough to give these companies the amount of money that they need. So these companies go directly to the public and they'll bring on hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of smaller investors so that they can get a larger amount of money. And that's how we get things like SpaceX, right? No one person could fully fund space travel, but you have thousands of individuals, right? And all of a sudden you can have space tourism and you can have private space companies. Um, so going public, right? And going on the markets is about going direct to investors. And so you can do it by going direct, but then once you do that going direct, now people are trading back and forth, right? You can't go to the company and say, well, I no longer want to own your piece of the company. Give me my money back, right? <laughs> They're not going to do that. They already used up your money. So what you need to do is you need to go find someone else who's willing to buy it. And that's where things start getting interesting, right? If if I if I own, you know, let's say, a thousand shares of SpaceX and I and I need the cash because I need to pay my rent, I need to pay my mortgage, and I go to sell that, well, who's to say what the value is, right? SpaceX isn't, you know, it's not a ton of wheat, it's not a loaf of bread, it's not milk, it's not steak, right? I can't go and use that. So someone else needs to say, well, I think SpaceX is going to do good, or I think they're not going to do good. And therefore, based on my expectations of the future, I'm willing to pay you XYZ for your shares in this company. And all of a sudden, right, you have thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of people all at the same time buying and selling, saying what they perceive the value of a company to be. And that becomes the market value. That becomes, you know, what a company is worth is what it can be bought and sold for, which may be very different than what it actually owns, right? SpaceX owns fuel, it owns rockets, it owns, you know, uh, expensive equipment, but it may trade on the market for less than the value of that equipment that you could, you know, then sell that equipment to people who would use it. Um, or even the inherent value of it, because it's all based on what someone else is willing to buy or sell it for. And that can that can become a dangerous game for us, especially in retirement. Um, and so while we can profit off of the fact that companies over the long run will do well, or sometimes people's perception of companies is that they'll do really well in the future and they're willing to pay a high price for something, uh, at the same time, it can hurt us because when people are not willing to pay those high prices, all of a sudden, this theoretical value can disappear. So, right? is, and, go ahead. so is that what causes stock prices to go up and down, Libel? That is 100% what causes stock prices to go up and down. Stock prices go up when people's expectation of the future is rosy and everyone's like, oh, the world is great and everything's going to be good. And then what happens is some news comes out or something comes out that makes people reconsider reality 
and all of a sudden people get pessimistic. It's not like they go like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll readjust my expectations a little bit. They usually swing wildly, right? Um, they're a little bipolar and people are optimistic about the future. Price goes up. People are pessimistic about the future. Price goes down. Um, and pe- what people are trying to do is they're pr- trying to price out, you know, what the future will be. Now, what also happens in this entire kind of thing that happens is, is you have institutional investors. So let's take like, you know, the New York State Fire Department, um, you know, their, their association, right? And you got the police union and they've got billions of dollars that they have to invest for their pensions, right? Or for their union. And, and when they're investing billions of dollars, they have to follow strict rules. And in following those strict rules, sometimes what will happen is the market will go down because people get overly pessimistic about something. And it, it could be completely un, unfounded, right? But it's enough, enough people got pessimistic enough that they were willing to sell at really low prices. And by doing that, they devalued the company enough that it triggers these rules to go off. And all of a sudden, these major institutional investors, and I think it's worth pointing out that the vast majority of money in the stock market is institutional investors, is these people who are running it for these really large organizations. So, you know, local governments, pensions, unions, billions and billions of dollars, trillions of dollars are being controlled by essentially committees that have to follow rules, very strict rules. And when these sell-offs happen, their rules get triggered and they have to move their money. So they have to either move to something that is, you know, less risky or they have to move into something that's more opportunistic, whatever the rules say they have to do. Mm -hmm. And that can further a sell-off. And it used to be, that that was all we had to worry about, right? And so people kind of learned what the rules were of these institutions and they were able to manage around it. And you can, you know, develop your own set of rules as a, you know, regular investor, as a retail investor. You could develop rules that profited off of those rules. We're learning a lot about stock markets today. (laughs) Can we find more about uh, the stock market and how it works at yields4u.com? Yeah, so I actually got a course that I've uh, recently launched called Investing 101, where I go through step by step, right, you know, the literally, right, we're starting with baby steps of, you know, what the market is, how do we invest in it, and and, and from the perspective of a, of a retiree, how do we create, you know, a stable portfolio that does what we need it to do? All right, that's Libel Sternbach, and you're listening to Libel on Fire When we come back, we'll talk about, uh, let's talk about certificates of deposit and even bonds. How about that? This is Libel on Fire, and we'll be back with more right after this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Libel on Fire. If you have questions about today's topic, please submit them on our Facebook group at libelonfire.com slash Facebook. And if you would like a free signed copy of Living with Financial Anxiety and Authenticity, visit libelonfire.com. Now, back to Libel on Fire.
Hi again, everyone. I'm Freddie Bell, and this is Libel on Fire. And we've been talking about uh, what the market is, how prices go up and down on the stock market. And I'm, one, I'm curious, Libel, how do you invest in the stock market? So there is really one, well, there's never just one way to invest. But <laughs> the primary way to invest is we buy what's called a stock or a bond. And a stock is a fractional share of a company. And so you own that company and that imbues you with certain rights, Um, rights usually to vote on things, you know, uh, decisions that the board makes. Uh, It gives you certain, you know, uh, the company gives has certain responsibilities to you because now you own a piece of it. Um, So generally speaking, it's by owning a stock right? Uh, Owning a uh, share in the company. Another way is that you can loan money to a company and those are usually called bonds. And so when you have a bond, you're loaning money to the company and in in return for loaning the money to the company, you're going to receive interest for a period of time. And then once that loan period is up, you will receive your principal back. Uh, It also, like a loan on your house, like a mortgage, uh, if something were to happen to the company, you would be in, you would be further ahead in line when it comes to who gets paid back and who receives money when that company liquidates. Um, So you would be ahead of general creditors. So, you know, unsecured debt that the company took on, you would be ahead of them. You would be ahead of people who own stocks in the company. Um, But you'd still be behind most other people. So that's why bonds are considered to be safer, generally speaking, is because, you know, if the company goes belly up, you're going to get something out of it. Uh, It mean, it's not it's definitely not going to be all your money, but you're not going to be left with nothing like Mm -hmm. most shareholders. Interesting. So are there some risk, inherent risk? And I'm sure there probably are knowing uh, Lival Sternbach, but talk about the risk and rewards of investing in the stock market. So the risk, the risk with everything, and it it really doesn't matter, you know, no matter how secure people say things are, you always have the risk that you can lose everything, right? The second that the money leaves your hands, you now have a risk of loss. The question is, is to what degree is that risk of loss? And the greater your risk of loss the greater your theoretical return will be. And the reason for this is quite simple, right? You probably, you know, when, when you think of all the people who understand investing and, you know, all the PhDs and whizzes out there, right, who are making, you know, billions of dollars, they're a lot smarter than us. And if they're going to take on a risk, they're going to demand that the return that they get or the possible return that they get is commensurate with the risk that they're taking on, right? They're not going to take on stupid, foolish risks. And so what happens is, is when we have thousands of people like that who are investing and they're demanding a return on their money and they're demanding a, you know, a reasonable return, that means that the rest of us get to participate in that, right? And so we can sort of safely assume that if we're the more risk we take on, the more potential reward we're going to get because the smarter people in the market are going to ensure that that happens. Let me give you an example, right? 
if I keep my money in the freezer, right? <laughs> nobody's paying me for that, right? So I get zero return, but I have zero risk. And really I have a little bit of risk that the dollar is gonna go down in value, right? So low risk, no reward. If I give the money to a bank, right? And I say, here, I'm gonna deposit this in your savings account, right? You can loan the money out, but when I want it, I can get it, right? So I have almost zero risk, right? Because what are my risks? My risks are that the bank, there's a run on the bank and the bank, you know, uh, doesn't have the money to give me my money back, but it's still insured by, you know, the federal government, the FDIC or SBIC, right? One of those insurance companies are going to reimburse me for my money up until, you know, $250,000. Right. So, is a very small risk. It's not zero. So if I'm more than $250,000 in a savings account, right, I have some risk, but for most people it's zero risk. So what's your return? Basically zero, right? Correct. Now let's move that up a little bit. Let's say I'm going to give up something. I'm going to say, you know what, to the bank, I'm not going to touch my money for five years. You can loan this out now for a longer period of time because you don't have to worry that I'm gonna come ask for my money, right? And so now the bank can say, well, we got this business opportunity here. We got this guy who wants to open up a pizzeria. We have this guy who wants to open up a plumbing business. You know, it'll take them two or three years until they're profitable. So we're gonna loan your money to those people and maybe we'll loan it to 50 of those people and spread it around but we know that you're not gonna come asking for your money for five years, so we're okay doing that. We're gonna make more money, and in exchange, we're gonna give you more of a return, right? Because in exchange for you telling me, right, you giving up the right to your money for five years, you're gonna demand something for it, right? And that demand is gonna be the interest that we're paying. And that keeps moving up and up and up, right? So the more risk that we're taking on, whether it's you know investing with our friend to open up a business, or investing in Bitcoin, which I think is like, you know, very speculative, right? And what have we seen? We've seen huge returns, right? Thousand, ten thousand percent returns, but it had a risk, right? Everything has come crashing down recently. Companies are going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. You have what were considered the banks of cryptocurrency, right? Having runs on their money or not having enough liquidity and they're liquidating now. And that's a very high risk, high reward, right? The investors got compensated for the risk they took on of that there can be a run on the bank in the form of getting 20% interest rates, right? In the form of getting, you know, 10,000% return on Bitcoin for a period of time. It's, you know, the, the piper came due at some point, but there was this opportunity, that risk reward that they got. And so when we think of investments, there are really three factors that there are three variables that uh, influence our return. Um, there is how much risk we're taking on, mm -hmm. how much of a time horizon we have to acquire that return, right? So the longer our time horizon is, the longer that we can wait to get a return, the greater of a return we'll get. And when you combine risk and time together, you end up with your return. So if somebody comes and tells you, I'm going to give you a huge return with no risk and no time, you run. know they're making something up, right? <laughs> it's not possible. It's time to if run. They, if they came to you and said, I'm going to give you something very low risk, 
but it's going to take a long time to happen and you're going to get a big return, right? That's possible, right? Because we're giving up a huge amount of time. And so what you want to try to do as an investor is balance those two factors to something of your liking so that you're taking on a risk that you're comfortable with over a time period that you're comfortable with to get the return that you need. So is that different for bonds, libel? So bonds, bonds, well, everything is the same, right? The question is, is what's the risk and what's the time horizon? Bonds have a built-in time horizon because there is a loan period. You have, you know, what is the length of that bond? It could be a one-year bond. It can be five years. It could be 30 years, right? So you automatically know what the time horizon is on the bond. And then the risk, the risk becomes when you have to resell that bond, right? Let's say you need cash or you need to reinvest. So let's say 10 years go by and that bond matures and now you have your principal. You now need to reinvest that money, right? You need to now go find another bond to invest in. And that is a risk. So there are different risks when it comes with bonds than with stocks, but the risks are still there the same. They're just different. I got it. So what about mutual fund? Uh, fund same question, but uh, as you explain, what what's the difference? What is a mutual fund? So once, now that we have those basic building blocks, we now have, you know, we can now slice and dice them uh, in different ways. And so the two most common ways is ETFs and mutual funds. And both of them are a basket of these stocks and bonds. So they're multiple stocks and bonds together. The difference between the two is a mutual fund is a company. It is a company set up to manage a specific investment. That means it has a board of directors. It has an investment manager. It has employees. It has expenses. It has marketing costs, accounting costs, right? It's, it's a full company and you own shares in that company. So that company may do what you think they're, they're supposed to do, right? If, imagine you and a bunch of your friends get together and you're like, well, one of our buddies is great at investing. Let's get, all give him our money and tell him to invest it. Well, you're not going to give him a blank check and say, do whatever you want. You're going to say, go invest it according to the mandates that we give you, right? Mm -hmm. We only want a certain amount of risk. We only want you to invest in these type of companies, etc. A mutual fund company, in theory, operates that way. The reality is, is that because there's a certain amount of lack of transparency when it comes to mutual funds, they may end up deviating from what their mandate is. And that's where you suddenly get mutual funds that have like really great returns. When you see a mutual fund that has better returns than its peers doing the same thing, you got to wonder what it is that they're doing that's different and if they don't have a good explanation, it might actually be that they're not doing what they say they're doing. So with all of this, Libel, do we need to have a broker or a financial advisor to help us to navigate through all of this? I don't think you do. There was a time when you really needed a financial advisor or a broker. You needed a broker to be able to access stocks and bonds and mutual funds. There, there was a time when you really needed to go through someone. That time is long past, right? You, to access the vast majority of investments, everyone can do it from their smartphone. Um, so you don't need a financial advisor to be able to access it. Where you may find that a financial advisor is helpful is in helping you make smart decisions 
and helping you not get caught up in the craze that's happening in the markets. Um, you know, when everyone starts getting up, uh, op, uh, optimistic or they start getting pessimistic, as Warren Buffett says, right, when, when people are greedy, become fearful, and when people are fearful, become greedy. And it's very, it goes against human nature. So a financial advisor, you know, they can help you combat that, you know, human nature and do what is smart and differentiate between smart risk versus, you know, dumb risk. And that is the real value of an advisor. Vanguard has a study that they, uh, that they do every few years that shows that, you know, a measurable difference of how much, uh, how much return an, an advisor makes for investors uh, by helping guide their decisions. Leibo, we're just about out of time, but can you tell us where we can get more information? I know you've got the wonderful yieldsforyou.com site, but there's another one. Uh, so we got uh, yieldsforyou.com is the main one you want to go to. We've got on there resources, um, and we've got the classes, and those will link to the different uh, sites that we have um, that I would recommend. All right. If you'd like more information, again, yieldsforyou.com. We've been talking with Leibel Sternbach. He is the Amazon best-selling author of Living with Financial Anxiety and also the book Authenticity. That, that website, again, is yieldsforyou.com and Investing 101. Libel, thanks so much for being with us. You've been listening to Libel on Fire. I'm Freddie Bell, and we'll see you again next time right here. That's all the time we have for this episode of Libel on Fire, the financial independence and retirement show dedicated to helping you build the life of your dreams. If you have questions about today's topic, please submit them in our Facebook group at libelonfire.com slash Facebook. And if you would like a free copy of Libel's books, Living with Financial Anxiety and Authenticity, visit libelonfire.com. Thanks for listening. Koppel Advisory Solutions is an SEC-registered investment advisor and only transacts business in states where the firm is properly registered or is excluded or exempted from registration requirements. Registration as an investment advisor is not an endorsement of the firm by securities regulators and does not mean that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. All investment strategies can result in profit or loss. Information presented on this program is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Discussion should not be construed as any offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell the investments mentioned. Annuity guarantees are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Content should not be viewed as legal or tax advice. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation.